you know, if it's true, if it's true that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, it is also true that Christmas is the most theological time of the year. Christmas is the most theological time of the year. And what I mean is, is that at the heart of what it is we're celebrating at Christmas time are among the most staggering theological realities ever revealed to the human race. Isn't that true? It is true. You think about what, what can top the virgin birth? What's deeper than the incarnation? What's more theologically profound than the hypostatic union of God and man joined together in Jesus Christ? What's more theological than the great Davidic king coming to the very planet that he created to build his kingdom upon it, to crush the head of the serpent and be worshipped by the nations? Christmas is the most theological time of the year. And when December comes around, we sing these realities every December. And yet the dreaded curse of the familiar, maybe we miss the significance. Things like Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Or things like Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Or things like, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. That is the deity of Christ, the incarnation, the second coming, and regeneration all woven together in staggering theological poetry. You understand, this, this is not the ghost of Christmas past. This is the God of all eternity coming to save the very people who sinned against him. To crush the head of the serpent who will take back the rebel planet and bring it in subjection to himself, who will fix what Adam broke, who will regain what Adam lost, who will restore what Adam gambled in the garden when he believed the devil's lie. And when you consider all these staggering theological realities, well, all of a sudden, Rudolph and Frosty tend to ring a little hollow, don't they? Parson Brown is a mushball compared to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Santa Claus is not coming to town, but Jesus Christ is to claim the earth that rightfully belongs to him. And when he does, no more will sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, but he will come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. See that right there? That is the reason for the season, right? This morning we arrive at what I call the theological epicenter of Advent because what it is is the announcement to a teenage girl that soon in the womb she would conceive. 
And the baby that she would carry was none other than the divine Messiah to come and make all things right in the world. That, that she was the virgin of ancient prophecy. That hers would be the son to reverse the curse. That she would give birth to the one who would put death to death forever. That in her womb would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, which means the offspring of the virgin womb, virgin's womb would be God himself to save the human race from the inside out. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about Advent. And from here on out to the rest of the end of December, we are answering the question, who is this king of glory? Who is this, this Lord of love? Who is this Lord who left the realms of glory to dwell among the sons of men? Who is this king born in a barn in a dumpy village who stumped theologians, who changed water into wine, who cleansed a temple, who resisted the devil, who healed lepers with a single touch? Who is this king who offered salvation to prostitutes? who made demons beg for his mercy, who, who calmed a storm, who healed the sick from another zip code, who raised the dead, who, who claimed to be God, who was slain for sinners, and then raised himself from the tomb. Who is this king of glory? And you understand, don't you? There is no question that supersedes that question in importance because depending on the answer you give determines where you spend eternity. And Luke answers this question in the most profound way possible, the most elaborate way in all of the Gospels, because what we find through the mouth of the angel is that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited king from David's line who will come to earth and rule forever. That's not merely what we would like to see happen. That is what is going to happen. That is how, how all human history plays out. You know that, right? And his kingdom is not merely some imaginary kingdom in the hearts of men, but a real, physical, tangible, actual empire on this very planet where all things are made right in the end. It's a staggering thing. So you have to understand, beloved, that, that being infatuated being captivated by this son is not only the reason for the season, it is the, me the reason and the meaning and the purpose of everything. So let's go to the text. Let's see and savor together this king of glory and Lord of love who, when he comes, will make all things right in the end. If you have your notes, there's always notes waiting out front between those two double doors. Either way, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text five features of the promised king. Five features of the promised king that solidify our hope, that fortify our faith, and guarantee our joy. That's where we're going. Five features of the king that solidify our hope, that fortify our faith, and guarantee our joy. And this will come in a couple different parts. Part one, I call this the favored virgin. The favored virgin. Because if you are familiar with the birth narrative of Christ, you know that this was a busy month for the Gabriel, angel Gabriel. It was a busy month for him. 
God sent him to earth with messages for two different people. Two different people, one for a man, one for a woman. He was a priest, she was a peasant. He was married, she was engaged. He was older, she was a teenager. His name was Zacharias and her name, you know her name was Mary. And here's the thing, both of them were faithful and righteous. Both believed in the promises of God. Both were waiting for the restoration of Israel. Both were looking and waiting for the Messiah. And yet here's the thing, neither one of them had any children. And yet they were both promised a son, and each of those sons would be major players on the scene of history, which means what Luke chapter 1 is, is nothing less than the tale of two sons. The tale of two sons. Son number one would be a prophet. Son number two, the savior of the world. One would be a reformer and a messenger, and eventually a martyr, but the other son, he would be the redeemer and the Messiah, and even God himself in human flesh. The name of the first son you know was John the Baptist. The name of the second son you definitely know, and it is Jesus of Nazareth. And, and just before the scene that we're about to see here, what did we see but the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, cornered in the temple by an angel? Right, who told him that despite their age and humanly incurable fertility issues, that he and his wife would have a son, and his son would be a prophet. And not just any prophet, but even the very prophet predicted in the Old Testament. And his job, this prophet's job, this son's job, would be, about to, would be to bring about a, a reformation and a revival and to repair, prepare the people to repent and yield to the Messiah. Put it this way, the prophet son of Zach and Lizzie had the job of plowing the hearts of the people which had long been trampled and packed down by sin and apostasy and centuries of endless disappointment. That was his job. And you remember the scene ends in verse 25 with a, a joyful mother, five months pregnant, astonished at the sovereign intervention of God, an intervention of, of God no less through her very own womb, which was barren. That's astonishing. And yet astonishing though that is, it does not compare to birth announcement number two, which brings us to one month later to a teeny, tiny town called Nazareth where there lived a teenage peasant girl who was about to get the surprise of a lifetime. Look at verses 26 and 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee by the name of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man by the name of Joseph from the house of David and the name of the virgin was Mary. That's incredible, right? And I know that sounds like small potatoes, all right, that's just historical filler, setting the scene before you get to the good stuff. No, that is is the good stuff. That, that, is the, that is the appetizer before the entree. Not only because it merely sets the scene, but understand this, it reverberates with profound Old Testament predictions that at that time had not yet been fulfilled. Notice very carefully, verse 26, one month after verse 25, Gabriel is sent again by God, this time to the sticks of Galilee. 
to an otherwise insignificant little village called Nazareth, and yet even that is a really big deal. You know why? Because get this, back in Isaiah chapter nine, it predicts that Israel's hope and consolation would emerge out of Galilee like light shining in the darkness. Which is really funny because Galilee is the last place from which you would expect anything good to come, and yet that's how God rolls, isn't it? Always doing the unexpected. And yet it's not where Gabriel is sent necessarily that's the issue, but to whom he is sent, and to whom he is sent, notice in verse 27, was to a virgin. Engaged to a man by the name of Joseph from the house of David, and the name of the virgin was Mary. You like chemistry? I hated chemistry in school. I didn't get it. Never made sense. I got D's in chemistry. But I like this chemistry. I like prophetic chemistry. I like the chemistry of prophecy. What I mean is a virgin girl in Galilee in and of itself doesn't really mean a whole lot, so what, and big deal. Probably a dime a dozen. Nor does a guy from the, the family line and lineage of David by itself is it really that big of a deal unless, of course, that virgin is engaged to a man from the house of David and now you've got my attention. Now you've got my attention because a virgin girl from Galilee engaged to a man from the family line of David just happens to be the very elements you need for the fulfillment of prophecy. And in particular, the very prophecy given by Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. You don't need to turn there, but do you remember that? Hear now, O house of David. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God is with us. With us is God. And now is the moment of of the fulfillment of that very prophecy. And, and, and there's Mary doing whatever it is that engaged girls in Galilee do when all of a sudden Gabriel, in the form of a human being, walks into her house, says this, verse 28. Greetings, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at the word and was reasoning in herself what sort of greeting this could possibly be. And here's the thing. Anyone else walks in her house like this, she grabs a shotgun or calls the cops. But there's something about the presence and probably the appearance of this man that makes her pause. Angelic beings, when they appear in the Bible, you know that they were radiant. They were obviously supernatural. It was clear that this was an angelic being. And so instead of screaming or running away, Mary instead stands there baffled and confused, stunned and perplexed, Luke says, at this bizarre and cryptic greeting given by the angel, because the thing about that greeting is that even, her, even his greeting is profoundly theological. Because notice very carefully, greetings, highly favored one, which is fine and technically correct, I suppose, but it misses the flavor of the actual Greek word because the root of that word is actually grace. The word's grace. It is the, liter the idea is literally having been graced one 
four, you who have been shown grace, sovereign grace that singled you out and selected you, not just for salvation, Mary, but even for the conception of the Son of God himself. Do you see the point? Grace draws out the reality that Mary didn't earn her status with her works, but that she had been chosen by God by his sovereign initiative and choice. And what's especially puzzling is the angel's declaration, hakurias metasu, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Well, what does that mean? Why does that even matter? Well, you should know that statement, the Lord is with you every time. In fact, the only time that God ever said that to anyone in the Old Testament is when he was revealing himself at crucial stages of his redemptive plan. Like to Abraham, to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua, to, to Gideon, to Jeremiah. What I'm saying is the Lord never said this to anyone unless he was going to use their lives in a critical way to advance his redemptive plan. And here's the thing. If Mary happened to remember the others to whom this was spoken, and if she remembered the theological import of that statement, well, no wonder she was dazed and confused. There's no way. There's no way that that could be meant for me. Because this girl, this, this teenage peasant girl, I mean, she's a grown woman of marriageable age, but literally a nobody in a little hick village off the beaten tracks in the middle of nowhere. If you think about it, Mary doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? She, she doesn't meet the criteria to be used by God to do anything notable in human history. And yet, when has God ever given a rip about human criteria? Rather, God is in the business of putting his worth and value and beauty on open display. And get this, the stage that he had chosen at this particular moment of history was the womb of a virgin in a tiny town of 400 people in the region of a country that many people assumed had been abandoned by God. Which was a stupid thing to assume. Because God not only keeps his promises, makes his promises, he keeps his promises. Which brings us to one of the most significant promises he ever made, part two, the promised son. The promised son. You understand Mary's just trying to catch up here? Come to grips with whatever it is that's transpiring in this moment. Look at verses uh, 30 through 32. All of a sudden the angel reveals the meaning of the meeting. Look at the text. And the angel said to her, do not fear, Mary, do not fear, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in the womb and you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of David, his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You don't need to fear, Mary. You have found favor with God. And there it is again. The word is grace. Do you see that? The word is grace. You see, Mary did not earn anything by her piety, but instead was granted and selected and elected not only to be saved from her sin, but get a load of this, to give birth 
to the one who would save her from her sin, the Messiah. You can see the angel's speech is not about her at all, but the one to be conceived in, in her womb, which brings us to the first feature of the king that, that solidifies our hope and fortifies our faith and, and guarantees our joy. And this is in your notes if you got them. Number one, the supernatural conception of the king. The supernatural conception of the king. Look again at verse 31. Behold, he says, you will conceive in the womb. And you will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, which is wild, isn't it? She was going to have a baby, but both the gender and the name of that baby had already been chosen, had already been predetermined. And when he says conceive, we all know the implication, right? We all know what this means. This is radical. This is supernatural. This is something biologically impossible, and this is exactly how Mary understands it. Look down at verse 34. How can this be? Since I have not known a man. This is impossible. This does not happen to which the angel replies. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy Child to be born shall be called the Son of God. That's how, that's the way, the only way that a young woman who's never even touched a man in her life can not only have a child, but have a child who would be the king to come to make all things right in the end. Which means, again, this is nothing less than the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, right? This is the virgin birth. And think about how astonishing that is, that, that the plan of God to save his people and bring the entire plan of redemption to its culmination was through the womb of a virgin. And, and no doubt, in some way, some form, Mary came to the realization she was the girl in the text. She was the very virgin through whom the Messiah would come to save the human race from the inside out. It was her. It was her. You pause and you think about this for a moment, right? And you think, okay, why, why does the virgin birth matter? Is this really this big of a deal? Is this really essential? Is this really necessary? Do we really need the virgin birth? I mean, what if it isn't true? So what? And there are so-called pastors and so-called theologians who dispute this and dismiss this and discredit this as negotiable and, and unnecessary. I mean, if the virgin birth is just a brick in the wall of our theology, the wall still stands even if the brick is missing, right? I mean, what's one brick? And yet, the truth is, you remove the brick from the wall and the entire wall teeters and totters and crumbles to the ground. You know why? Two reasons. Number one, the virgin birth is used by Isaiah and by Luke as one of the most dramatic displays of the deity of the Messiah. In other words, Jesus Christ is God and the virgin birth is the proof. Isn't that what Isaiah said? That the name of the child would be Emmanuel, God is with us. 
Isn't that what the angel says in verse 35? The holy child to be born shall be called the Son of God, meaning God the Son, the very second person of the Trinity. The whole point of the virgin birth is to get our attention and turn our heads to see that this biological phenomenon is nothing less than the fullness of deity in bodily form. But the second reason this matters, listen very carefully, is because of what Isaiah in chapter 7, what he called the virgin birth, and what he called it was a sign. He called it a sign. And in the context, listen very carefully, this is, this is a lot of moving parts here. In the context of Isaiah 7, the sign was the evidence that God was going to protect the Davidic line and thus guarantee that the Messiah would come and thus ensure that the entire plan of redemption would be fully and finally fulfilled. In other words, if you don't have the virgin birth, you lose everything. And so with the entire weight of redemptive history hanging in the balance, the certainty that God will keep every promise and bring all things back to the way they ought to be is the one, is the offspring of the virgin's womb. And you see it, right? And so, so, so bring it back to our lives today. So what and who cares? Well, you need to understand that to persevere in our faith and to make it to the end we need the virgin birth. We need this. What I'm saying is, is that it's because of the virgin birth and all that it means and all that it includes and all that it provides and, and all that it implies is that we can look at sickness and death and evil right in the face and we can boldly declare to them, your reign in this life is strong but your days are soon coming to an end. Why? Because the great tomb, raider, and grave, robber, and death eater, and dragon slayer, and lamb of God, born from the womb of a virgin, will do away with those things once and for all. Feature number two of the king. Number two, the sonship of the king. The sonship of the king, verse 31, notice, you will conceive and you will bear a son. Verse 32, he shall be called the son of God, or the son of the most high. Verse 35, he shall be called the son of God. That's a really big deal. Not because sons are better than daughters necessarily, but because the mention of a son immediately downloads and triggers all sorts of centuries of Old Testament predictions about a son to come on the scene of history, right? Do you understand? The issue here is not biology, it's theology. And to be more precise, it is royalty and deity coming together in humanity, which is exactly what it means to be the Messiah. Because we tend to stumble over that son language, don't we? we? We tend to balk a little bit over that son language. It doesn't grip us with the kind of weight and gravity and significance that it should. And yet, and yet, beloved, if we only knew what the sacred text said about the son to come. Second Samuel 7, verse 12. 
The son is a king from David's line and he will reign forever. Psalm 2-7, the son is the Messiah and a king who will rule the nations. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, you know it well. The son is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Proverbs 30, the son comes down. Do you know that Christ is in Proverbs? Proverbs 30, verse 4, the son comes down from heaven, controls the wind and rules the earth. Daniel 7, verse 14, the son gets glory and a kingdom and is worshipped by the nations. Do I need to say any more? Yes, it's true. It's true that the son to come would be the literal physical son of Mary. That is true. But at the exact same time, he is the eternal son who will slay the dragon and get the girl and save the kingdom and be worshipped as God by the peoples of the earth. It's a big deal. You understand, to be the son, to be the son is to be the son of God. That, that's Trinitarian language, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the, the, the one sent by the Father to save the human race from the inside out. And I think Mary understood this. In fact, she, I know she did. I know she did because you read later on in the chapter, and we're going to see this next week, Mary had a muscular theology. And I understood that the Son in her womb would arrive on the scene of history and recover the kingdom squandered by Adam. And here's the thing, beloved, the reason why, the reason why any of this matters to you is because the son runs an adoption agency. He runs an adoption ministry. What I mean is, listen very carefully, the eternal son became the adopted son and with his death paid the adoption fee by which we become sons and daughters of the living God. That is incredible. You see, you have to understand that in the son, when we place our faith in the son, he extends to us his own status as a son. He includes us in his own infinite inheritance given to him by the Father, which means that when we are linked to Christ by faith, his future victory becomes our future victory. His redemption becomes our redemption. His future kingdom becomes our future kingdom. Do you see? And what that means, what that means, the implications of that are staggering. What that means is, is that it does... And it does not matter what we lose or suffer in this life. It does matter, but in another sense, it does not matter because everything that he bought with his blood becomes ours by faith in him. And anything that we lost or suffered for his sake, he will restore 10,000 times over in the age to come. Can you think of any privilege or blessing more incredible than being a son and daughter of the living God through the adoption of Jesus Christ. There isn't one. Which brings us to feature number three of the king. Number three, the significant name of the king. The significant name of the king, and, and you know, 
picking out a baby's name is part of the fun of being a parent, right? Mary would receive no such pleasure. She would receive no such opportunity because the name of her son had already been predetermined. And we see that name in verse 31. Look at the text. You will conceive in the womb and you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. You know what what makes that statement so profound? Is that everything the angel just said to her is a word-for-word reduplication of Isaiah 7.14 except for the name at the end. It's exactly the same except for the name at the end. Isaiah says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. The angel said, you will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? The overlapping of those two names, the juxtaposition of those two names together. And you know about names, don't you? God gives names to people and they are not arbitrary titles. Names reveal the role they will play in the scene of history on the plan of, in the plan of redemption, right? It reveals who they are. Names portray the role they will play. And Emmanuel, you know, it means God is with us. With us is God, which means what? This is the incarnation. This is God in human flesh, but the name of Jesus is equally powerful. Do you know what the name Jesus means? It means Yahweh is salvation. That's what his name means. Yahweh is salvation. What's the point? What's in a name? Romeo asked. A a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, but this is the one exception. See, Jesus, the name, isn't just a title. It isn't just a, a designation on a birth certificate. Rather, even the name itself is a theology. The name itself is a declaration. It is a proclamation to the world that God has come to earth to save the souls of men. Do you see? This is Yahweh incarnate. God is with us, is Yahweh, is salvation. The names, the overlapping names, reveal the identity and mission of the Messiah. This is the God who became man for us and for our salvation. This right here is the name above every name, right? This is a name far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is the name of the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what you have to understand, what we have to remember, beloved, listen carefully, is that God with us is still with us. Not physically, but he is with us in and through his word, isn't he? The God who came near in human flesh is still near in and through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Do you see? You know that about the Bible, right? This is not just a piece of literature. 
This is not just a, an, an ancient document, a holy artifact of antiquity. No, Jesus Christ meets us in and through his word. He ministers to us in and through his word. He mediates his very power and presence and the very pleasure that satisfies our souls in and through his word. You see this, don't you? And you see the application is, and listen very carefully, the slow and painful changing of our lives, the painful carving of our lives by the sword of the spirit, get this, is a picture and preview of what the king will do to the entire planet when he shows up. Do you see? That's the purpose of our sanctification. Did you know that? The slow and steady transformation of our lives is a picture and a portrayal and a preview of what Jesus Christ will do to the entire cosmos when he shows up. And, and you know, if you're a parent, and, you're, and if you don't have any kids of your own, your parents wanted this for you, we all want great things for our kids, right? We want them to be great, I guess, and do great things, to, to live long and prosper and have a career, I guess. And if you're a Christian parent, what you really want, what you really want more than anything in the universe is that your child would love God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength and live their lives for the glory of the kingdom, right? What if your child is God and will rule a kingdom? Because that's exactly what features four and five describe. Feature number four, the supreme titles of the king. The supreme titles of the king. Look at verses 32 and 33. He, this son supernaturally conceived, he shall be great and shall be called son of the most high. And the Lord God shall give to him the throne of David, his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And there it is again. There it is again. Deity and royalty intertwined and mixed together. And you notice there in verse 32, look, that the son conceived in Mary's womb shall be great and be called son of the most high. You know what those are? Those are titles of deity. Those are descriptions of God himself. You understand, listen very carefully. To call him great without any qualification is dangerously close to calling him God, which is exactly what the angel is doing. Because okay? it's like great doesn't mean better than good, right? It's not like, okay, he's a little higher on the scale than other life forms. No, Greatness is an attribute of God himself, right? Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. Of his greatness there is no end, Psalm 145 verse 3. His greatness is his supremacy. His greatness is his majesty. You see, as fully God, the Son would fully deserve all worship and allegiance from the sons of men. And yet what you have to understand, listen very carefully, let's, let's do some theology together here. It's not as though he is a second God in addition to or in competition with the Father. Instead, is equal to him and one with him as his very own son. Do you see? 
Notice verse 32. Not only would he be great as God, but he would be called the Son of the Most High. And this is way above our pay grade here. But at the end of the day, the point is, this is a profoundly Trinitarian title. Christmas is the most theological time of the year, beloved. Listen very carefully. As God. The Son shares with the Father all of the infinite perfections that make him fully and equally God. But as the Son, he has a different role that differentiates him from the Father. To be the Son of the Father doesn't make him less than the Father or younger than the Father. Rather, it distinguishes him from the Father as the one sent by the Father to come and bring redemption to the human race, which is just wild, isn't it? And mo most people have zero idea that what we are celebrating in December, the Christmas season, is the divinity of the Trinity and the mystery of history, which is God who became a man without ever ceasing to be fully God. You understand, don't you? Christmas is for theologians. Christmas makes theologians. And rich and deep doctrine is not a deterrent from, but rather is the secret to the deepest joy and satisfaction of our lives. Feature number five. Feature number five of the great king to come. This is two for the price of one here. The sacred throne and the sovereign reign of the king. The sacred throne and the sovereign reign of the king. Look at verses 32 and 33 again. The son shall be great, shall be called the son of the most high. Here it is. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of David, his father. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's very Israelite. Over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You know where I stand, and you should too. That on the authority of God's word, we reject the sloppy eschatology that has wedged itself into the minds of the church for decades, maybe even for centuries. What I mean is we, we come into the Christian life somehow in some way with our default views of the future, our default views of, of, of eschatology, of what's to come as some kind of like misty, immaterial, quiet reality in some heavenly realm, right? We don't really know what the future is, but it seems kind of foggy and fuzzy and quiet and, and togas and harps and, and, and sitting on a cloud and none of that is in the Bible, Heaven is in the Bible. That version of heaven is not. And are you ready for this? Heaven isn't even our ultimate destination. So I've said this before. The song, this world is not my home. That's not true. That's not true. This world will be your home, just not in its current fallen nightmarish condition. Because you understand, don't you? We weren't made to be phantoms or ghosts or celestial orbs floating in some mystical realm somewhere, we were made for a kingdom. Just as real and physical and tangible as the Garden of Eden itself. In fact, Isaiah 54 verse 6 and Ezekiel 36 verse 20, 28, 29, somewhere around there, say that it will be the restoration of Eden itself. So there's that. 
Listen carefully, beloved. The, the mission of the Messiah was not only to ransom souls from every nation, but to reinstate the kingdom that was lost and squandered by Adam. And that's exactly where the angel is going. Notice verse 32. The Lord God will give to him the throne of David, his father. I mean, you feel the gravity of this moment, don't you? With that statement, a thousand years of mystery were instantaneously resolved. Why? Because way back in 2 Samuel 7, God made this promise, and I quote, listen carefully, speaking to David, this is God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your father, fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Ad Olam, forever. And this is not Solomon here. I will be to him as a father, and he will be to me as a son. Wait, a son that comes to earth and reigns forever. And the Psalms and the prophets agree, and not just agree, they resonate with the theme. Listen to Psalm 89. Yahweh says to David, I will make a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. Forever I will establish your offspring and I will build your throne for generation and generation. One thing I have sworn to David in my holiness, I will not lie. His offspring will be forever and his throne will be like the sun before me. Isaiah 9, 6, you know it well. 9, 6, and 7, verse 7 goes on to say that as for the dominion of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now on until eternity. Have you heard Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6? Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land and the name by which he will be called Yahweh Tzidkenu. Yahweh is our righteousness. And on and on the text go dozens and dozens of texts exactly like that, portraying that the great Davidic king will come and reign forever on the earth, that come and make things right in the world. And yet the question mark, the size of the universe was, who is this king? Who would he be? Through whose birth canal would he emerge? And all of that suspense is instantly relieved the second the angel said this to Mary, verse 33. He, the Lord God, shall give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Beloved, beloved, stay with me. Who will fix what Adam broke? Who will regain what Adam lost? Who will retrieve what Adam gambled in the garden when he believed the devil's lie? Who has the power to conquer Satan's reign? Who has the power to crucify our fears? To crucify. 
crush our sins and trample them underfoot? Who has the power to invade our lives and put to death our stubborn sins that just never seem to go away? Is it not the serpent-crushing, curse-removing, sin-bearing Savior who will build a kingdom and reign forever? Is it not him? It is him. Let me just ask you this. And I want you, I want you to really think about this, beloved. How is your hope and joy in Christ doing this morning? Be really honest with yourself. How is your hope and joy in Christ doing this morning? Again, we, we live lives with a lot of clutter, with, with, a, with a lot of noise. It's easy to forget. How is your hope and joy in Christ doing this morning? How, how are you holding up in this war called the fight of faith? How are you doing? Are you persevering? Are you thriving in your faith? Are you barely surviving? Are you dying in your faith? Let me ask it this way. In what ways is your faith and hope in Christ being challenged and even stretched to its limits even at this very moment. There, there are gunshot wounds in here, metaphorically speaking. Right? There, there, is, there is pain in this room, and I'm not saying that to make you feel bad about it. What I'm trying to say is that there is hope. Here's another question. What are the encroaching lies and fears in your heart that threaten your faith? Final question. What are the competing voices in your life and maybe even in your own head that question and challenge what God has said and spoken in his word? Do you see? So many problems in our lives begin with thinking on lies and not on the great king to come. Here's the issue. Let's, let, me, let me level with you here. This text intersects with every single fear and doubt and difficulty of your life. Every single one of them. Even if this text doesn't say one word about your particular struggles directly, and it probably doesn't, it nevertheless provides the power and the perspective you need to handle anything that is in your life at this moment. And, and Mary is rightly perplexed. Verse 34, she asks a question that is, that's perfectly logical. Look, look what she says. Verse 34, and, and Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I have not known a man. I, I'm just going to level with you, Gabriel. I've had the talk with my mom. I get biology. I've read the Song of Songs. I know how this works. And yet, all kidding aside, I mean, she's not being caustic. She's not being skeptical necessarily, but she's legitimately curious and, and astonished, right? I mean, I think this is an honest question. I think, I think she gets that this is supernatural. I think she's, she's just asking for security clearance to kind of wrap her head around this and, and, and under this, this mind-blowing announcement. And in response, the angel answers the question without really answering the question. Have you noticed this? Look at his response, verse 35. And the angel answered and said... The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy Child to be born shall be called the Son of God. Do you see what I mean? He answers the question. But the question 
is beyond our ability to understand. What does that even mean, that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High would overshadow her? That's kind of like asking the question, I've said this before, how does nuclear fusion work? How does that work? Well, that's easy. Two atomic nuclei combined together, creating a nuclear fusion reaction that is then transferred into energy. Any questions? So, I mean, you, you answer the question, but the answer is way above our pay grade, and so is this, but even more. Even more. Because you understand, what the angel just described was a divine fusion reaction where the infinite God who transcends time and space would materialize and localize himself inside the womb of a peasant girl from Nazareth. And fun fact of the week, when the angel says that the power of the Most High would overshadow her, get a load of this. That's the exact same word used in Exodus 40, verse 35, when it talked about the glory cloud of Yahweh. Do you remember that? And his very presence came down, and the word was overshadowed the tabernacle and filled it with his glory. That is exactly what would happen to Mary. Think about this here. The fullness of deity dwelt inside a zygote in the Philippian tube of a virgin girl from Galilee. An egg in Mary's womb, 14 millimeters in diameter, was infused with the very Son of God who caused the universe to exist. And not that we claim to get what that means, but it proves the point of the angel in verse 37 when he says, nothing will be impossible with God. Do you see? And Mary looks this high-ranking extraterrestrial being right in the eyes and declares, Idu, hey, dule kuryu, behold your slave, May it be done to me according to your word. And without even saying a word in response, just as quickly as he apparated into the room, the angel disappears, leaving Mary by herself to grapple with some of the most staggering theological realities ever revealed to the human race, because that's what Christian, that's what Christmas is. That's what it is. It's a time, beloved, and this is my encouragement to you. It's time to slow way down, way, way down, and think the deep things of God. Dads, if you're not accustomed to doing this, it's time to gather your family and just, just read through Luke 1 and 2. Just read through that and show them the glory, the wonder of the incarnation. Christmas morning, instead of tearing into presents, just gather the family, pause, read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23 or whatever, and, and just walk them through the narrative, show them the glory of the God who became man for us and for our salvation. Because the deep things of God don't disappear during Christmas, do they? In fact, they emerge with greatest power and force, and they demand our contemplation and even our worship. You understand, beloved, and I'm almost done here. I only have like an hour left of my sermon, so we're, we're really close here. 
you understand, the secret to a thriving soul is not to think less deeply of Christ, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who Christ is. So don't merely shoot for holiday cheer, shoot for holy cheer. Don't look for the Christmas spirit, whatever that means, which has zero power to change your life, but instead seek to be indwelt and strengthened and empowered and transformed by the spirit of Christ. Because how he does that, when he does that, is when you make Jesus Christ the unceasing object of your joy and contemplation, because that is not only the meaning and goal of Christmas, that is the meaning and goal of life itself. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we again are reminded and refreshed and even astonished by the wonder of God made flesh. Word of the Father now in flesh appearing. Oh Lord, we did not see your glory physically. We see it through the text and we love it through the text. And, and, and seeing you in your word, hearing about you in and through your word is just as real, just as significant as if you were standing in the room. And yet, oh, how we long, oh Christ, to live by sight and not by faith. Oh, how we long for that. And so, Lord, please, please help us this December. May this December set a fresh and new trajectory for our lives that, oh Christ, that daily we would commit ourselves to putting our elbows on either side of the Bible and meditating on who you are from the sacred text. Help us, O oh Christ, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from who you are. May we delight and enjoy and treasure you above all things. We thank you for this time. In your mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen.